Jen, is it Ruiz or Ruiz? What, how do you how do you prefer for your last name to be pronounced? Uh, Ruiz is fine. Ruiz. So Jen, Jen Ruiz, thank you so much for being here on the Willpower Podcast. The way that that we're having this conversation is uh, super kind of like random, but I am so glad that we're having it because after you agreed to come on, I did some research on you and. If I thought I was impressed when I was like, hey, we'd love to get together um, and, you know, have a conversation on, on, on my podcast, I'm like, was looking forward to it. I was looking forward to it. And um, for people listening, what's really funny is uh, I, I randomly ran into your, to a video of yours on TikTok and I came back to Instagram, looked you up and it, you were actually in Oklahoma City. Is that correct? Yes. Well, I flew into Oklahoma City, when I was, but I was partnering with Chickasaw Country. There we go. And then so I was just like, hey, you know, I uh, would love to have you on. Um, you know, we're, you're just like two hours down the road and you're like, I'm actually not from there. And I was just like, man, well, I'd still love to do it. But Jen, for somebody that hasn't uh, heard about you, heard your name, give us a one minute introduction. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure. Um, sorry, I couldn't be there in person. I would have loved to have spent more time uh, in Oklahoma because I really did enjoy my visit. My name is Jen Ruiz. I am the solo female traveler behind Jen on a Jet Plane. This whole journey started for me back when I was practicing law the year before my 30th birthday. I set out to take 12 trips in 12 months, wanting to do something for me, wanting to do something different, wanting to send off my 20s in style, right? Not just in an office. And that trip really changed my life. I ended up taking 20 trips to 41 cities across 11 countries, all while being back in time for court at 9 a.m. on Monday morning. I wrote my first book after that because people were asking me how I was getting to all of these locations and how I was affording the flight. So I wrote the Affordable Flight Guide, which was in number one bestseller in eight categories on Amazon and won a Reader's Favorite Book Award. So with that modest success under my belt, I thought I quit. Uh, I'm to do this full time. I also had a side gig that I had taken on that year teaching English online. So I used that as my, you know, proof that you can make money online and as a crutch while I was building my other income streams. And so now I've been doing this full time for the last five years. I am a five time Amazon bestselling author. I have four national travel writing awards with bylines in Photos Travel, Lonely Planet, Time Magazine, National Geographic. I'm a three-time TEDx speaker, and I have a memoir coming out about the experience called 12 Trips in 12 Months that will be out next summer. Man, that is amazing. And for anybody that's listening right now and, you know, and it's thinking like, you know, this is kind of where you say all your achievements and all you've done, you mentioned, you mentioned a lot of them, but what, if we can start this conversation and actually rewind because one of the things that I was really impressed with um, was I have listened to all three of your TED Talks, which they're all they're all kind of different, but then like about this in the same nation in the same way. Um, and uh, so in the first TED Talk that I listened to, I don't know if it was your first one or not. Um, it, I think it was the Solo Traveler one. Yes. You mentioned that by 17, you had already like gotten accepted uh, to uh, was it a full ride that you got you, you went to college, correct? And yes. by 21, you had passed the bar exam. By 21, I was in law school. At 24, in law I school. passed the bar 24. exam. 24. 
24, you pass the bar exam. So walk me through that. So you are, let's just go back even to like 10 to maybe even 15 year old Jen. Are you like, when, at what point were you like, I want to be a lawyer. This is what I want to do. I didn't want to be a lawyer. Uh, so my family told me I was very gifted at persuasion, uh, you know, debate. That was always something I enjoy, public speaking. But I actually thought I wanted to go into communications. And the reason why I didn't end up being a communications major and ended up majoring in political science instead is maybe not something I would encourage others, but it was because I was so involved with the school that I was in. I was in so many organizations, Relay for Life, student government, you know, things like that, that the communications major would have required me moving to a remote campus that was far from all of that. And I wouldn't have been able to pursue student life. And while I do value education, I do, I think people underestimate how much you learn from the extracurriculars. It was the extracurriculars that made school fun for me. That was the difference between me and people that just commuted and went to class and then went home, right? So I actually had a community in my school. I had, you know, different things that I enjoyed doing. I got to lobby state senators. I got to go on, you know, international trips and things of the sort that were only made possible because of those activities. And coming from a Latina family, they never understood that, right? My mom always thought your only job is to go get A's, come home, study more. Like, why are you spending 40 hours a week on all these extra things? Like, it makes no sense. But I actually think that that's what I valued more so. So I didn't want to go to that remote campus. I ended up um, staying in the main campus to continue my involvement. And that's when I switched to poli sci. And I, when I graduated, I still wasn't you know, 100% sure about law, but I knew that it was a natural progression for political science. I knew that I really liked school, as nerdy as that sounds, right? Because it's a safe container. Uh, you may, you have built-in friends that you see in classrooms and these activities. Uh, and so going to law school and going to graduate school seemed like the natural next step. I didn't feel ready at 21 to enter the workforce. I wanted to study more. And law school felt prestigious. It felt like something I could do that would gain me immediate credibility that would lead to that well-paying job. You know, everybody says you're going to be a doctor, an engineer, or a lawyer. And that's kind of the track that we grew up thinking was desirable. Blogger was not even a job when I was in college. That wasn't even a possibility. Influencer did not exist, right? Like these were not jobs. And so I'm very grateful that I got my law degree. I think that it's something that I still rely on every single day. You know, I had to fight the HOA for a crazy fee. It was like $40, nothing, no big deal. And I remember thinking like, this is so much effort for $40, but I have defended uh, foreclosures before based on HOA fees. And I've seen how quickly they can get out of hand with interest and things like that. And so I was like, I'm not playing games with this HOA. And just being able to sign it, like Jennifer Ruiz-Garite Esquire, you got an answer right away, right? Like it's a whole different story than like Jen. Um, and so I still use my Esquire title to have that credibility, to work on contracts, influencer contracts, brand contracts. And it's something I value, um, but I don't know that it was something that I necessarily grew up dreaming of being. What do you think you would have done is if at 21, you graduated, you graduate uh, with your undergrad 20 or 21? 
21. 21. So 21, let's say whatever crazy reason you couldn't go to law school, like what, what do you think you would have gone and done with that political science degree? It's hard to say because it was political science major and an English minor. And if I were to think like, what kind of job would this take? I had been doing a lot of internships, political internships. And since I enjoy public speaking, I enjoy policy making. I enjoy being in the room where the decisions happen. Um, that was something very alluring about law. So if I couldn't have gone straight into law, I would have probably done something related to politics. I had already worked for a U.S. senator. I had met the president of the United States when I was 19 years old. And I remember feeling the energy of being in those spaces, that the high paced political environment. And so I thought that maybe one day I would want to run for office. So I would have probably applied to be a staffer, a political staffer. Gotcha. And then so fast forward a couple more years and then you are taking the bar exam. How describe to me how how hard or easy that was for you. Yeah, so I took two bar exams. I'm actually barred in two states, Maryland and Florida. Florida did not have reciprocity. So when I decided to move from Maryland, I had to knowingly sign myself up to take the bar exam again, which was you know, not something that most sane people would do, um, especially because after five years of practicing law, you do have reciprocity and your license will transfer to most other states. But there are a few exact exemptions and Florida is one of those, particularly because people want to come and retire in Florida uh, because, you know, so they want to still make it so that you have to qualify for the bar when you get here. Um, and so for me, I spent an entire summer, you know, really hardcore studying for the bar. The only thing I did from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep for a solid three months um, was study for the bar. And so it, I did it with a bar course. There was a particular bar course in Maryland whose name is escaping me at the moment, but they were really good. There's some that are like international, really well known, but this one was a more regional specific one. And it had a mix of live courses and the exercises I was doing at home. And I was so grateful for that course because I really felt well prepared going into there. Barbary is one that people just do that, that they know about. And I think I did end up doing Barbary or some other competitor when I took the Florida bar. And I remember thinking this is a completely different type of training than the hands-on training that I received in Maryland with that more local course. So I also went to the gym. So I studied and I went to the gym because you still have to have some kind of physical activity so you don't go insane. Um, and so it would be like, study from 9am to noon, go to the gym for like one hour, come back and study some more, or do the practice questions for a certain number of hours, and then like sleep, do it all again the next day. It was the most intensive prep I've ever done for anything. And once I passed the first bar exam, which I felt pretty good about, I also different bar exams have different testing conditions. Again, I was very lucky with Maryland, because here in Florida, they make you go to one site, all the people who are taking the bar exam, they put everybody into like a stadium and they put tables out that have splinters on them. And like, you have to deal with the nervous energy of hundreds of other people around you. It's really more of a psychological game here, I think. Whereas in Maryland, I was in my school, my school, University of Maryland was one of the approved testing centers of many. And so I only had to walk a block, like I didn't have to get a hotel, I didn't have to drive four hours out of my way to uh, Tampa or wherever it is that they do the bar exam here in Florida. And 
it was so comfortable. It was a room where I had already studied for three years. There was a bathroom right across the hall that there was only a dozen other people in the room with me. It was well air conditioned, quiet, like really nice. And so I think that that atmosphere also helped a lot with the mindset going into it. Whereas I remember walking into the Florida one and just being like, this is really intense. Like there's so many nervous, freaking out people around you um, that I think that that's actually what gets a lot of people to not pass more so than not having the knowledge, just being in that really frazzling atmosphere. So for me, it also helped that when I walked in there, I had a mindset of no matter what happens at the Florida bar, I am already an attorney. I am already barred. I'm yeah. already, you know, so that helped a lot. Whereas I know a lot of Florida people that have had to take the bar multiple times that are intelligent people that have gone to, you know, top 20 law schools, but it's a, it's a different environment everywhere you go. So I was really grateful for having Maryland as my first one. Man, that is crazy. I can't even imagine. So let me ask you this though. Don't you have to take like a test, uh, even before getting into law school, like a specific test as well? Yes, is you have what, to take that, the LSAT. It LSAT, that's what it is. So no comparison between the bar and the LSAT. A like comparison. As as, like, like, like as far as, like I'm saying, like how in difficulty-wise, like the bar should like here, LSAT's here. Like how would you compare the two? LSAT is more testing your logic. And that's why there's a lot of studies that say that it favors, you know, one group of people over another that have been taught to think in that way, whereas minorities aren't necessarily taught to think in that way. But it's like logic problems. It's it's word games. It's things that you're trying to figure out, like if so-and-so walks in and then so-and-so walks in afterwards, like it's um, you have to learn how to do the test. And that's what I think a lot of people don't realize. They think they have to learn the knowledge. No, you have to learn how to do this test, this very particular test. And you have to do enough practice questions that when you see a practice question, you've done it before, even if it's just different characters, different like locations, but the same structure of that question is something you've already figured out, you answered. And so unless you're doing minimum, like, 10,000 practice questions so that you become familiar with what they're going to ask on the test because they're only going to vary it up so much. Um, And you think you can just go in there like knowing something and that that's going to get you somewhere. That's not how it works. And so I did also spend a summer training to take the LSAT with a particular LSAT course. These courses are usually in the four figures. Um, So it's an investment for anybody who's taking them. And I think that's also where it can be prohibitive for minorities, right, that don't necessarily have the money to spend on that. Um, But I I knew that that was going to be the only way I was going to do it. So I did score reasonably well on the LSAT. I remember personally being devastated because my goal out of 180 was 165. And I fell three points short of that. I ended up getting 162, which was still a really good score for an LSAT, definitely way above the average Hispanic score because of the men- the problems I mentioned with training. And I was just devastated. I spent that entire weekend, like, I was like, no one talked to me. <laughs> I need to deal with this horrible loss uh, of my Ivy League future. Uh, and so, like, That's it, crazy. It oh, so, my gosh. It's really stressful. Man, I feel like I could like part of the reason of why I like doing the podcast is just getting to talk to people that and just 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 being curious and asking like whatever question. And with you, I I'm like 
I you always go into it and I'm like curious about all this travel stuff, but I'm just even like you, like I, like I said, in, introduce yourself. And then you're just like, I've done this, 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 this. And I'm like, wait, like people don't even know that you, you know, you mentioned a tiny bit that you were an attorney, but like, there's just so much there. I'm, I'm still so curious about. So you pass it, you go, you're, you were an attorney for how long, like five or six years. Yes. I, so I was a, First, when I graduated, and I don't, you're right, I don't talk about my attorney background so much because we focus so much on travel and it feels like a, a whole other lifetime ago, but it's an important foundation of who I am. And so once I passed the bar, um, well, still while awaiting bar passage, I immediately right after law school started clerking for a judge uh, in the felony trial court in, in Baltimore City. And so I was the judge's right-hand person. I led the jury to the jury room. You know, I made sure I reviewed all the documents, things like that. And I was working on felony trials, which was really intense. So murders, rapes, like all of criminal trials. So the most, you know, egregious things that you could possibly think of. And for me, it felt, again, really satisfying to be the person who's in that room, to be among so many power players, to see all the evidence that comes in that ultimately the judge has to decide whether or not it's allowed to be seen by other people, because um, the jury doesn't see everything. The attorneys argue, you know, this is admissible, this isn't admissible. So it felt like for me, being behind the scenes and having all of that knowledge was just such a privilege and such a great learning experience, seeing how the juries thought about things, hearing their conversations. Juries don't worry too much about like, what is the legal argument being made? They care more like, did you see that attorney's shoes? She's so well-dressed. And, and it's really, it plays a part. Like Defense attorneys play into that and they come very well-styled with their alligator shoes or with their you know colorful outfits how they see a juror on the stand or somebody testifying or a victim that's sitting there giving their experience. I saw a lot of women that were discredited in rape cases because of how they were dressed or people making up all these stories. Like, I think there was a secret relationship between them. And, you know, and again, I'm seeing all the evidence. So I'm seeing like the positive DNA evidence. Like I'm seeing everything that comes in. So it was fascinating. Uh, a year working for a judge before then I moved to Florida took the bar in Florida. And while I was waiting for Florida bar clearance, I could practice social security law, which was federal with my Maryland license. Because since it was federal, you only needed a license. I didn't need that state's license. And Florida bar clearance took a while. They took me like two years to get bar clearance in Florida. So I was very grateful to have that job where I could still practice as an attorney, not as a law clerk, uh, making an attorney salary while I was pending clearance in Florida. And so I handled more than 500 social security cases. I was handling about 12 cases a week. And that was where people would be so mentally or physically disabled that they would apply for social security benefits because they weren't able to work. And so I learned a lot about that system. I learned a lot about what payouts social security will ultimately guarantee you, even if you do everything right your entire life and paying to the system. Like, I think the most I saw for someone was like $1,600 for somebody with a six figure job. And so I think also right away, I thought, Social Security, 
not going to be something I rely on because, you know, it's not really providing. Even when you do everything right, even when you have a state job, even when you're working for 30 years for the same company, you know. And so I did that. And then I ended up switching into nonprofit work where I worked on contract law. And the big reason for that was the lifestyle change. I was very grateful for the firm that gave me that opportunity, but you know, 12 hearings a week, each hearing has at least a thousand pages of medical records that I have to go through that I have to like, you know, get it all. And then they're, they're kind of overwhelmed because it's a numbers game and you never know who's going to be approved. So they take on everyone and then they don't have enough people to get all the records for everyone. So I was in hearings where somebody's like, you know, the judge is like this person saying they had a stroke, like, where's that medical record? And I'd be like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) I don't know. It's in one of the thousand pages. Just like and then like they haven't requested that record and now I'm there with the client who's been waiting three years for this hearing wanting to know you know where's that where's that record how come you don't have that and it was so much of that because it's a lot to keep up with and they just somebody has to request those records they have to follow up with the hospital like it's such a pain and I couldn't also do that in addition to like reviewing the case records preparing the arguments all the things Um, so it was a very very stressful job and then to see people that I knew were deserving like there was one woman who had worked for the government the state government for 30 years was such a like Um, like church going woman, like perfect in every way. Right. And she had a stroke, like she could not speak, like her whole left side was paralyzed. And I knew that no matter what, it wasn't going to get approved because we were going in front of a judge that had a horrible approval rating. And it was so heartbreaking to have to like, kind of cushion her for that ahead of time. Like, Hey, this judge just doesn't approve people. She approves like 10% of the cases. And even then it's only after fighting for a long time because there's social security spends money. And so there's a lot of pressure on the judges to deny cases. And we have some judges that are good, some judges that are fair, some judges that are generous. And one or two judges that I firmly believe are like placed there by evil forces to kind of push people over the edge, you know, Hispanic people, we believe in all of that. Um, But they just, they felt inherently like they were purposely ignoring these people's pain and so I had again I'm the person I'm the I'm the person that's there as the representative so I have to let them know that and say you know we're going to appeal all of that but I was dealing with people who had already been out of work for years and I think nobody really understands what that feels like to be completely reliant on your friends or your family. Many of them, if they didn't have friends or family would become homeless to not have any kind of income to have like your entire hope going into this one hearing. And I was a, you know, a young 20 something. I was in the job for like a day before I had my first hearing. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Like I haven't even shadowed you at a hearing. Like, I don't know, (laughs) you know? Um, So it's right into the fire. And it was, it was a hard job. That's crazy. So what, how many hours were you working when you were there? Uh, It seemed like constant. So uh, it wasn't billable hours, right? I was salaried, which is good. And I did appreciate that because having to keep track of your minutes, like the private firms do when you're billing a client is also very tedious, but it, it was a lot of work because I still had to go through the files and I had files on my computer. So even when I'm home the night before, I'm sitting here like going through everything and, and trying to get my arguments straight. So it felt like at least like 12 hour days kind of thing. Um, and like it never stopped. And I was young enough 
to have that energy, but I very vividly recall the sound of like my heels going through a parking lot that was empty and resonating because the rest of this building, you know, in downtown had already been emptied, you know, three or four hours before I left. And I just, I remember that sound, it stuck with me as like a very isolating sound, a rhythmic sound, but also like, that's what I remember about that job. Um, it was, it was a, it, again, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Excuse me, I'm just going to get my computer charger. Very grateful for the opportunity, but I feel like it took so much out of me to do that. I had great experience and I was, you know, grateful for the people I could help. Cause again, I think I, I cared. That's my problem as an attorney. I actually, like my heart broke for a lot of these people and I felt a lot of pressure to get them wins. And so I'm happy for the people I was able to help when I was there, but I was also very happy to make the switch to nonprofit law where it wasn't so much a volume thing. You pick a case based off of whether or not you think it has merit whether or not you want to defend this person. Like we had much more discretion in the cases I was taking on and it, and so much time off. Like I remember within the first week at the nonprofit, I had left my keys. I couldn't find my keys and I was trying to go home and it was 5.15 and I was trying to recruit somebody to help me locate where I had left my keys and I couldn't find a single person in the building. Like everybody had left work already by 5.15. And so while I was initially frustrated, like, oh, I couldn't find my keys. I was like, this is great. Nobody even stays after 5.15 here. Like, this, is, this is amazing. We're in a whole new world now. <laughs> was, there, was there a big difference in the pay, pay aspect of it from the social security to the nonprofit? You would think so, but no, it was about $5,000 less in the nonprofit for me. So I did take a pay cut, but they also had a $5,000 yearly stipend that I got for being in public service that I could put towards my student loans. And so that evened out. And then also having leave, right? All of a sudden I had 10 days off and five days sick leave every year. I never had that before. I used to have to work on Thanksgiving Day, on Christmas Day. I had taken off for my birthday. And I remember, you know, I, I got a little bit of passive aggressive comments from the attorneys, like if I should have been working. And so for me, having just normal leave, because this isn't, we're not even talking like Europe level leave where they're like 24 days. That's the basic. Like, of course, you're going to have a month off. Like it's just two weeks. And so with that, I felt like I've been given the gift of time. Holidays, bank holidays. I have presidents there. Off. <laughs> like, what is yeah. this? <laughs> yeah. So my next question for you, I thought you kind of maybe answered it, but I I think that with the transition that you have from, from your first job to the nonprofit, maybe not. But listening to your TED Talk, you say that whenever you set up your goal, to say, which I love that, by the way, um, because there's people think of goals of like, hey, I'm going to get fit this year. They say things like, I'm going to get fit this year. Or like, I want to pay debt off or like, I want to buy a house. They they say that. But to me, I call those people like, and I wish me like, I wish like a wish is not going to happen. But but when you make a plan, that's more likely to happen. And travel is something that people wish all day, right? And it's something as easy as your coworker telling you, "Hey, I'm taking my family to Disney World next month." And then that uh, you know, that person says, "Man, I wish I was doing that. I wish I could do that." 
And as long as you put set out a plan, instead of saying, I wish that was me, you could even say, that's amazing. I'm taking my family in 2030. Like you have a plan to save. You have a plan to take time off. All this stuff. You were like this year, when you were 30 years old, right? 29. This year, 29, 29. And I am going to 12 countries in 12 months. And that, I love that you set that goal. End up going to 20, which I love even more that you crushed that goal. But my question to you was on the TED talk, you talked a little bit about um, how you kind of started looking around. Everybody's getting married. Everybody's having kids. And you're just like freaking out. You're like, what's going on? So that played a, a portion or not a big portion of why you decided to do that. Uh, but was there anything else that made you say like, I I'm doing this. I'm going to go to 12, 12 places in 12 months. Was there anything else outside from the whole single thing? Yeah. And it didn't have to be new countries. I just wanted to take 12 trips and 12 it started trips. because I had previously been taking these birthday trips. So having gone to school in South Florida, the epitome of a birthday celebration was having a VIP line in South beach with like a cake with firecrackers in it. Right. And that was how you celebrated your birthday. And that was what you should aim for. And, uh, around 26 or so I started to realize that those birthdays sucked I actually wasn't happy. I was more worried about who was showing up to my birthdays rather than just enjoying or celebrating my life. And then one year I decided to do something differently and take a flying lesson that I bought on Groupon and go fly a plane on my birthday, something I had never done before. And so that birthday, I remember coming down, landing that plane, crazy, uh, and thinking like, that was really cool. And even if nobody shows up to the party tonight, even if nothing else happens, I will always remember this birthday as the birthday that I flew a plane, right? That's, that's amazing. And so I started to travel for my birthdays as a way of marking the time and honoring myself, taking that time to really celebrate myself and do so in a way that was independent of other people. Because I think we we worry so much about other people's validation, other people showing up, other people. And I wanted to do something for me. And so my 29th birthday, I was keeping that tradition going. I had been the year before to Barcelona, where I'd gotten some of those passive aggressive comments. Uh, and in Athens, which is where I started the year, I'd always been somebody who thought you get you know, from midnight to midnight, this is like the Disney princess mindset that we're indoctrinated with, right? So once midnight strikes, your birthday's over, the celebration's over. I've never been like a week-long celebration person, a month-long celebration. I worried that would be annoying to others. Um, and so I, that year, as I was sitting there in the Acropolis, you know, celebrating my 29th birthday, feeling really good, I thought to myself, like, why does it have to stop? Why do I have to like, that's it. And the next time I can celebrate myself is next year, you know, next January 3rd, when this is the last year of my 20s. Like, I've worked so hard all throughout my youth. Like, I've never done anything really fun just for me. I've been so focused on the next goal and the next, you know, school and the next test and the next job. What if I just keep this birthday feeling going and celebrate the end of my 20s in this epic way for myself, like who's going to tell me I can't like there's no birthday police here that's monitoring how much time I can spend on this. And so I just thought it would be a cool idea if 
I had that same feeling, that same lightness, that same enthusiasm for life that I had when I was celebrating my 29th birthday at the Parthenon. And if I spread that feeling out for the rest of the year as a way of sending my 20s off, you know, that's your youthful years. I know I still feel youthful. I've had a few gray hairs that popped up yesterday where I was like, where, why are you here? Um, <laughs> so, so it's a little bit different now, but it, it felt like it was now or never. It felt like I was never going to get that time back. And I could go back to what I had been doing, or I could decide to do something just for me, something fully within my control and figure out how to extend that celebration, that feeling of joy throughout the entire year as a gift to myself, as a birthday gift to myself. And that's incredible because that's even speaking to people like myself. I mean, this is my last year in my 20s. I turned 29 in January. Uh, maybe, I mean, we were just talking. I mean, I just had a baby two months ago. Maybe I can't be that extreme, but I think that that's speaking to me on, and I hope it's speaking to people, whether you're in your 20s or your 30s, whatever. But one of the things that we have to always remember is that the most valuable currency out there is time because you'll never be able to get that back. And I remember you you saying, uh, or people were asking, like, what did your parents think? Did they think that you were a failure because you left law, uh, being a lawyer, to, to go and be a blogger? And, and you said that they were actually super happy for you because you weren't going to be able to get that time back. Like, you know, what are you going to wait till you're 65 and uh, not have forget about social security. I mean, I'm talking about even people that are, that are compounding the interest on the, the retirement accounts right now, that they retire with like a couple million dollars. You got to make that last for the rest of your life when we're living a lot longer than we were before. So, and at that point, let's say that you're a millionaire, like it's just not the same. Like you're, you're a different person. Like I'm even a different, I feel different, uh, William at 29 without a kid and William at 29 with a kid, because it's like, I can't just, you know, say, Hey, I'm going to take a trip every single month this year to finish out my thirties. Right. Because it's like, now I have different responsibilities. Right. So, um, that is, that that's awesome. And I'm glad that you were, you were able to do that. So a couple of quite more, a couple of quick questions that I have for you is one, you went by yourself. So you didn't have to depend on anybody else. And actually, before I go there, one thing that you and I were talking about before we started recording was we always look at, we always think like, what are people going to think about us, right? And that was kind of what started for you. You're like, oh man, everybody's having kids, everybody's single, all this stuff. And then you pop up those stats in the back and it's like, hey, did you know that this many people are single? Did you know that this many people are actually, and it's crazy how like, we literally create this fear and narrative in our head. But once we actually start seeing like, I'm a data person, I'm a numbers person, once you, the data doesn't lie. So was that a big motivation that kind of pushed you? And instead of saying like, hey, look, like this year before I turn 30, I'm going to find a, hus a, a husband. I'm going to find like a boyfriend, right? To settle down. Did you, was it that data that made you say like, like, forget that. Like this year, I'm going to do this. Did, did, did that did you look at that data before? And is that what kind of push you? So you're a data person and I'm a feeling person. Um, so I was motivated by feeling 
so happy when I was traveling on my own versus feeling so stressed out when I was swiping on dating apps and trying to manufacture a connection, trying to think, you know, I have this long before I turn 30. I have this long before uh, my fertility runs out. Like I have on this amazing race, it felt like musical chairs, right? And I think for a lot of people, it's kind of like that where once you approach 30, the music's up and you have to like sit on whatever chairs around and like, maybe you're on the floor, maybe you found a chair, maybe you're not super happy with the chair you're on, but like, you know, the music up is up. And so you're going to stay seated because you don't want to lose the game. And so I thought to myself, like, I'm going to stop playing this game altogether. This is a horrible game and I don't like it. And it doesn't make me feel good. So I found the statistics later to back me up the same way with solo female travel. I did it because I enjoyed being on my own, I enjoyed traveling, you know, to places and really learning and having my own itinerary. And then later, I found the statistics that women are more likely to travel solo than men. And when they do travel solo, they're highly likely to repeat and take another solo trip. So I found statistics to back me up after the fact, and it made me feel validated and helped me share my message with other people that are more numbers driven or do need some kind of encouragement besides that intangible feeling. But it was 100% that feeling of when I'm in the office, I feel stifled. I feel like I'm working very hard to fix other people's problems that don't generally get fixed. Like it, maybe it's a temporary fix, but some people would be returning. They'd be there two years later, you know? So it felt like a hamster wheel almost of me exhausting myself, trying to save the world that was going to keep turning whether or not I killed myself doing this. You know, my job would have been my job was when I quit was, you know, somebody else was hired immediately You're you're replaceable. Um, or do I want to foster what it is that's making me feel alive, what it is that's making me feel like I'm actually finding genuine human connection, the experiences I had when I was traveling, you know, but the very second trip, the February trip, I went to Florence, and I had a, an entire opera dedicated to me in Florence, like, I got there early, which, you know, is an American thing to do because in Italy, they do everything late. And so I had plenty of time to talk with the people that were putting on the production and they, uh, you know, I sat in the front because I wanted to have a good experience. I paid extra. It was a very intimate setting. It was in a church. You have these chairs set up. The acoustics were amazing. And about and halfway through the show, before the intermission, they were like, we'd like to announce a change in programming to dedicate a song to a very special person in the front row. And I remember being like, Ooh, who's the person? And then the man started singing to me. And wow. You know, that's a moment that I can never replicate, that I can never get back, that I'll remember forever. And that feeling of elation, that feeling of like, I am in Italy. There's a man singing an opera song to me right now, dedicating it to me. Um, it was amazing. And I felt like when I was traveling, I had like this inner light that was activated in a way that it brought a lot of people and gifts like this to me in instances like that where I felt very blessed. And when I was at home and I was working and I was swiping and I was feeling frustrated and I was in scarcity mindset, that light was turned off and my energy did the opposite. I felt like it repelled people. Like I've had so, so many guys that I feel like I just have a talent of like, they just ran so far away 
day. And it was because my energy was off. And I remember feeling that difference very distinctly. And on a drive back, because I would fly sometimes out of Miami airport where the deal was, and I would work in Naples. So I had a two hour drive back sometimes. And I would talk to my brother, my little brother, he's four years younger than me. And I remember telling him about this once, my light theory. And he's like, so why don't you like shine your light every day? And I think he meant in a way that was, you know, more practical, but I was like, you are right. I should quit my job. <laughs> He's like, I didn't, I didn't say that. I was like, no, no, I get it completely. You are so right. Um, I need to find a way that I'm shining all the time, that I'm happy about the person that I am and the things that I'm attracting versus feeling like I'm failing to conform to this box that people have put me in. I'm failing to find the husband. I'm failing to procreate. You know, I'm failing to be uh, running for office. I'm failing to be in top, you know, 30 under 30 on Forbes. Like I'm failing on all these things. And it really is just a matter of perspective. And if you kind of can switch what it is that you're focusing on, and for me, travel was the clearest way to do that. It was the easiest way to be present and be outside of my mind, worrying about the future, being super anxious. Traveling actually allowed me to be in the moment, that elusive power of now, right? That Eckhart Tolle talks about where I was like, I remember reading the book and being like, this is garbage. Like I can't, like, I'm not getting anything yeah. tangible out of this until I traveled and I realized, oh, like this is what it means to just like live in the moment, to just enjoy what's actually happening instead of being so worried about what's going to happen or what has happened. And that's where you get anxiety and depression, right? Like depression comes from reliving your past mistakes, beating yourself up over things that you've done. You're living in the past and anxiety comes from living in the future. Like what is going to happen? Is there going to be enough time? Am I going to have, you know, 2 million saved up for retirement? And so those are two really big things that plague our society in the U.S. because we're so achievement driven. We drive people to really work themselves to death and we applaud them for it. Oh, you haven't slept in five days. You're such a good employee versus like that's seriously unhealthy and you know um so that was the difference and and guess what uh what happened in the past and what's what's going to happen in the future we can't do anything about that people forget that the present is called the present for a reason like it's a present for you it's a gift because you can live in the moment right you can't be stressed out about what you've done or what you're going to do because you literally can't like even like anxiety for um, the future. Like I always tell people like faith and fear are the same thing. You're literally believing something that's going to happen. That's bad. Or you're believing something that's going to happen. That's good. But you have zero control over it. Whether you are focusing on like, you know, everything going good or everything going bad, you have zero control over it, but you have control of what's going on right now. Like if I want to get up right now, stop this conversation. I can do that because I'm in the moment right now. If I want to do whatever, right? Well, man, like I told you, I, I could talk to you for hours. It seems like this is our first time meeting. And this is kind of rare because sometimes I like to be like, Hey, can we jump on a zoom before? Or like, can I meet you before if it's in person? But I've had such an awesome time talking with you. I really appreciate you. Uh, one of the things that I want to kind of send people to uh, is is that book out of the books that you've written, you said you you wrote one about how, how to do it um, and not spend a fortune. And I can tell people that myself 
included like I've been to Hawaii twice round trip my wife and I have been and I've paid under $30 for those tickets because of points credit card points I don't know how big you are into credit card and, and points but like I'm huge into them so I'm assuming you've accrued plenty of points through all this traveling but um what what is that book and they can find it on Amazon is that correct that's correct. The book is called The Affordable Flight Guide. You can just Google it, find it on Amazon by Jen Ruiz. And it is, it discusses that. My three main ways of finding cheap flights, points and miles being one of them, they're amazing. And travel credit cards have so many other benefits in addition to that. I had a minor incident with a rental car while moving and I just got noticed that they're paying out the $2,000 that would have been charged to me otherwise, just wow. for having put that rental card, a uh, car on my Chase Sapphire card. And so, and I've gotten reimbursed for $1,000 when I couldn't make a trip to Egypt that was non-refundable. So travel credit cards are so amazing, like just for so many reasons and other people outside of the US don't have access to the same benefits. So that's one thing that I love. And I always recommend points or miles for people who want to fly business class or who are really rigid about, you know, when they have to travel. I have to go to my sister's wedding in Italy in July, no flexibility, points and miles. I also talk about um, budget airlines, which are another great way to fly for less, and uh, flight alerts, flight alert programs. I get about a dozen flight alerts every single day for flight deals. Uh, Scott's Cheap Flights now going is my favorite. They had a $230 round trip flight to Paris, you know, just like two weeks ago. I'll be going to Scotland on a $400 flight to the Highlands that I found through the flight alert programs. And so that's all broken down in my book, along with general best tips, practices. It's called the Affordable Flight Guide. Love it. And this is not an ad, but you're sapphire. <laughs> but, but, and I will say, I'm curious because you're the expert in this field now. But the other thing you said, there's all these perks. The first thing that I thought of was lounges. Like, I, this is, this is me now. Anytime I'm like sitting in a place that doesn't have a lounge at an airport, I'm just like, I feel so, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, okay. So he, he, here's the next one right here. So as the travel expert, and for those of you that are listening, I just showed her that the Sapphire and uh, American Express uh, Platinum. I feel like there's a big arg argument of which one is like the best for travel. I know there's a huge difference in the annual fee, and I'm sure you probably maybe talk about that in your book and stuff, but uh, a lot of people, they, they get scared off by that. And it's like, no, like if you break it down, like it makes sense. So which one, which one is your favorite? Not which one do you recommend, but which one is your favorite, Chase Sapphire or Amex Platinum? I really like Chase because of the flexibility and I've been able to redeem it for so many things, not just flights, like the rental car in Scotland, I just got now with Chase Ultimate Rewards. Um, and so I do enjoy it, but I do understand also that Amex lounges are a little bit more exclusive and they're definitely a draw for people. Um, so I see the pros and cons of both, but I, I would lean towards Chase just because, and they've been so good to me in compensating for these things, the car insurance, the canceled trips, um, so I've had really good experiences with the card. And I will say, uh, I asked her what her favorite one was, but if I asked her, which one would you recommend people to start on? I think that we would agree that it would definitely be the Chase Sapphire for sure, rather than the Amex Platinum, because it has a much lower sticker price there. And, uh, and it's such a great card. It really is. But once again, talk to you for hours. I got to respect your time. 
the last thing that I want to ask you, and that's one of the things that kind of made me excited about the conversation. Not only did you have data in your in your um, TED Talks, but I believe in all three of them, you mentioned a quote in each one of them. And I was just like, just intrigued. What's the, I'm all about quotes. I love quotes, but it doesn't have to be a quote, but what is the best advice you've ever received? Hmm, best advice I've ever received. I think do things imperfectly, I think is a big one because I think so many of us wait, like even just through vacationing, uh, I can vacation perfectly when I'm retired and I have all this time off and I have all the money ready, but there's no guarantee that your health will be there. There's no guarantee that those sites will still be there. We've seen a lot of things deteriorating. And so I think in life, you know, just putting yourself out there, my very first TV interview I gave, I didn't necessarily feel ready, but I did it anyway. And so I think sometimes understanding that perfect is an illusion that you're never going to be 100% ready. And if you wait till you are, you're going to be missing out on all the other things along the way. I think it applies to vacationing. I think it applies to business. I think it applies to romance. Um, just put yourself out there. You know, if you don't have the exact perfect anything, that's okay. None of us really do. Um, and I think too many of us let that stop us from taking action. So doing something imperfectly, so long as you're taking action and moving forward, I think is, is the most valuable life mantra and advice I've been given. A hundred percent. And a lot of the times I, we put so much pressure on ourselves that we forget that humans are attracted to imperfectness. They're intimidated by perfect even though there's no such thing, but humans are more attracted to vulnerability and relating to people, uh, struggles and like, oh, that person messed up while they were giving that interview. Wow, they're human, right? Like they can make you more likable as well too. I've learned that uh, as well, but thank you again for coming. Uh, if you want to tell us again, um, your two books and how can people find you? One last thing there. Absolutely. So once again, that book is The Affordable Flight Guide. I actually have five books I've self-published and be on the lookout for my memoir, 12 Trips in 12 Months, coming out next summer, June 2024. And you can find me in the meantime at jenonajetplane.com. If you want to know what's happening, if you want to be aware of flight deals, travel opportunities, general tips, I do encourage you to join my mailing list. It's called the Jet Plane Crew. Um, we have over 13,000 people on there that get weekly emails from me. And so I think that's the best way to stay up to date. Love it. Well, thank you again. It was awesome having a conversation. And hey, who knows? Maybe we'll have this conversation again sometime in the future in person. I would love that. I'll come to you. <laughs> oh, that's good. I appreciate you.